Hey everybody, this is Klaatu. It is time for a listener feedback episode. I've gotten some great feedback from listeners, and it's time for me to address some of those comments, I think. So, first one is from Dave Morris, who you might recognize from Hacker Public Radio. He says, um, Firstly, RCS. I had almost forgotten the use of this many years ago. I wasn't very advanced. It, it, it wasn't very advanced use, but I looked back at some of my archived scripts and found their RCS versions. I really liked this tool back then. In particular, I liked the way it updated the version number every time I checked something in. I missed that with Git and have written some Vim additions to manipulate version numbers on request. Secondly, I liked the log it kept and the ability to add it to the code with dollar sign log colon dollar sign. And then, this is Klaatu again, and then he gives some sample, uh, a Perl snippet that, that adds the log to the code or something. So um, I, I thought about this a lot because he makes a good point. The version number handling has been, I will say, something that I've had to struggle with myself quite a lot. I didn't ever, in you know, originally I didn't know how it was done at all. I just thought people went in and updated the version every time they made a change to the code, which seems kind of reasonable to me. I mean, really, thinking about it, you have to open the file anyway, so why not just, just update the version number variable? That seems reasonable. But in practice, of course, it's not reasonable. You forget, you don't update it, and then you've published something with the same version number and that's not correct and then if you want to go back and be correct you have to go you have to kind of retract that and and repost the code and, and it's just it gets really messy pretty quickly so that obviously wasn't working so my original solution to this as i wrote to dave morris in response was a an auto tools version update script or or, or rule actually it's a, it's just a rule in the makefile.am so this isn't a perfect solution, but it's it's part of the you know it's it's it was it's part of the journey. So in makefile.am, I have a, a rule to build the thing, and so let's call it foo. So foo colon um, source slash foo, and then or foo dot you know whatever, and then the the thing that happens, the rule is at said space dash i. So we're doing this in place space, quote, search, or, you know, s, uh, pipe, underscore, underscore, vernum, var, underscore, underscore, and then pipe, at, package, underscore, version, at, pipe, close quote, src, slash, dollar sign, at. It's not pretty, <laughs> but it, 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 it is elegant, it's just not pretty, it's not pretty to look at. That's not my fault, that's makefile's fault. Uh, so the at said, is just saying call the said command within this make file. And the at, I keep getting it mixed up, does the at mean that it echoes it out or that it doesn't echo it out? One of those two. So that's that's not a big deal. Said, that's all we're doing. We're, we're calling said. Dash I for in place. Quote, S, pipe. So instead of using slashes, I'm using pipe. I don't remember why I did that, but I, I decided to do that. So S, pipe, underscore, underscore, vernum, var, underscore, underscore. That is my custom-made variable in whatever source file it is to represent the version number. And the reason I use that underscore underscore vernum var underscore underscore is because I'm unlikely to use that exact string anywhere else. 
and I doubt anyone else is going to either. That's just an odd, wonky variable name. Not very convenient, but but intuitive. It's clunky, right? But it, but it works, because it's underscore, underscore, vernum var, and then underscore, underscore. Okay, so it's a unique variable name. And so anytime in my source code I refer to a version number, instead of typing any number, any integer, I type underscore, underscore, vernum var, underscore, underscore, and leave it at that and then pipe at package underscore version at. Now that reads the version number from the configure.ac file in, in AutoTools. So in other words, AutoTools knows what version you are building. And that variable, at package underscore version at, that variable there is an AutoTools variable that gets swapped out with the current version number. And I'll, I'll, I'll specify exactly how to, how to specify that in a moment. And then pipe and then close quote. So we're just doing that once in this case because I know that in this particular file, the version number is only referenced once. And so it just seems clean to only update, you know, only look for that variable once, swap it out with the version number, and then get out. If, if I knew that the version number was referenced in several different functions, then I would make that a global thing. I would add G at the end of that. Close quote, and then source slash dollar sign at, which again is make file syntax for the file that we're processing right now. The where the, the, the place where the version number is specified is in the configure.ac file, ac underscore init, parentheses, square bracket, foo, close square bracket, comma, square bracket, 2.4.6, close square bracket, comma, square bracket, clatu at gnuworldorder.info, close square bracket, close parentheses. That's the version number. So under this system, I still have to go in and update the version number, but I'm doing it at build time, when when the thing is being released to the public. And that is a, that's sort of one of those auspicious moments where there is a certain sequence of events, and and it's not that hard to go in and change the version number. So for me, that has more or less worked as of late. It takes, it takes, it it still puts the the burden of updating a version number on me, but it consolidates it into one place, and it's one place that I'm thinking about anyway when I'm doing a release, because I'm doing a special auto tools process that I don't normally do. So that is, that's one way of doing it. And then because of this email, I started thinking about alternate ways of doing the same thing and i realized that there's th there could be a way where you could automate the incrementing of a version number in git with what's called a pre-commit hook so git in case you don't know has these mechanisms called git hooks and hooks are things that you can trigger through any number of common git functions uh, it's pretty common. It's it's not unusual to work at a place and have Git Git hooks implemented on the official repositories because they want to make sure that, for instance, you haven't accidentally left in I don't know some test data before pushing the code to the public repository. So maybe you've got a a public or rather some test data that you very frequently use on your team. Uh, username bogus, password bogus one two three. 
you don't ever want that to get pushed out into the public um, code repository, not because there's anything sensitive there, although maybe there that could be a thing, um, but in this case that wouldn't be because it was sensitive, but because it's useless test data to the general public. They're not interfacing with your systems. User bogus and bogus123 won't have meaning for the public, whereas it has all the meaning for you because when you run your tests it's uh, logging into your server as bogus bogus123 or, or whatever. So you want to make sure that that string bogus and bogus123 never appears in your source file. So you might have a pre-commit hook that looks at all the files that you're that you're trying to commit or, or push or whatever my example was and if it finds the string bogus or bogus123 then it shuts you down. It, it, not your whole computer, just the process. It, 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 it exits with an error, with a, with a one rather than a zero, and says that you cannot, cannot push this or cannot commit this, whatever, because it, it contains this string. So go back and fix that and then try again. And so it's, it's a really nice little mechanism. And there's a lot of other uses. I think I've, I feel like I've done a Hacker Public Radio episode about Git hooks, possibly about using Git hooks to, mirror the contents of your of a web development folder onto your live production server that's that's a great way to you just you push stuff to your git server and on the on the server side there's a git hook post uh post push or something like that post commit i don't know post something and and it knows that when when a certain trigger has been when a certain requirement has been fulfilled that it can now copy all of your files, all of those HTML files, over from from the bare Git repository to slash var slash www slash whatever. So it's a it's a really nice way to kind of manipulate how a Git repository handles your files one way or another. And it occurred to me that a Git pre-commit hook could potentially be the the answer to this little quandary. So I decided to give that a go, and here's a really basic example. So I've got a file here. Well, so I've got a git repository, all right? So git init return. Now it's a git repository. And I'm going to create a file called file.txt, and in that file I'm going to put the word foo. So pretend the foo is the version number in this, in, in this example, but I'm trying to be trying to keep this simple. So it's the word foo. Now I'm going to do an emacs on .git, and I know that there's a .git directory here because I, I made this a git repository, and git repositories have a .git directory in them. Now I also happen to know, because I'm familiar enough with git to know this, that there's a directory within .git called hooks. That's H-O-O-K-S. Now in hooks, there's a bunch of sample scripts. There's commit-message.sample fsmonitor-watchman.sample, post-update.sample, pre-applypatch.sample, pre-commit.sample, prepare-commit-message.sample, and so on. There's a bunch of, of little samples. So I'm going to open up the pre.commit. Well, actually, I'm not going to open up the sample. I'm just going to open up pre-commit. So this is an empty file. I'm just writing this from scratch now. So I'm going to do hash exclamation mark slash bin slash sh. And then I'm going to write this single little line. It's going to be said dash i. So I'm doing an in-place replacement here. Quote s slash foo slash bar slash g slash no, not g, slash quote, close quote. So that's just we're searching for foo and replacing it with bar 
as many times as we need to do to 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 do that. For as many times as there are foos in in this file, we'll replace it with bar. And then what is this file? Okay, well that's a little bit wonky. Um, different hooks sort of received require and expect different parameters. Pre-commit, I don't really think it require. It doesn't expect it to see anything. So it it doesn't know, pre-commit doesn't know what file you want to operate on. You have to tell it that. The way to get the file being sent to git for committing, this is a little bit weird, but you do dollar sign parentheses, git space diff space dash dash cached space dash dash name dash only close parentheses. So that is again dollar sign parentheses, right? So we're doing we're launching a subshell here. Dollar sign parentheses. Git diff. Git diff is a command in Git that runs a Git specific diff operation. You know diff. It's the way that you get differences between two files. This is the Git version of it. So which is basically just diff dash dash unified actually. So git space diff space dash dash cached space dash dash name only dash only close parentheses and What's happening here is that it's saying to give me a diff, only the name of the file, though. So don't give me the diff. Just give me the name only of whatever you have cached. And that returns, and in fact, you can, I'm going to save this and exit it. You can actually even run that in a Git repository. Well, actually, you can't yet because there's nothing added. So anyway, so I've got this file.txt. So I'm going to git add file.txt. And now I can do git space diff space space, or space dash dash cached dash dash name dash only and I get returned to me file.txt so there's proof that that works okay so and that's because I added the file.txt so I've, I've git add file.txt just stages or you might say caches it, it stages a file within git so that git knows that it's supposed to be paying attention to that file so I've just added file.txt it hasn't been committed yet it's not it hasn't been written to the my repository. It's just a file. Git, because I added it, git knows that it exists. Now I can do a git. Actually, I'm going to make one minor change. I'm going to do chmod plus x. I don't know if I have to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. Dot git slash hooks slash pre dash commit. There. That that makes sure that, that git, the, the pre commit hook is executable. Okay. So now I'm going to do git commit dash m for message, quote, um, I have a file with foo in it, close quote. So when I commit, all I'm doing is I'm taking a list, the list of files in git add that I've git added, and I'm sending it to the repository, to my local repository. I'm, I'm committing it to sort of to the final record of my git repository. So I'm going to hit return. And it says one file changed, two insertions, one deletion. So if I do a cat on file.txt, I should see the word foo, right? Of course I don't. I see the word bar. Why? Because before git committed the file that I told it to commit, it took one action, a pre-commit action. And that one action, if I do a cat on .git hooks slash pre-commit, that one action was said dash i, quote, s slash foo slash bar slash g close quote on each file 
in the added in, in the staging area. So if I had several files with foo in it, then then it would have iterated over each file, swapped out the word foo for the word bar, and then it committed it. Simple as that. So I started um, trying to do a an awk version of of that modification. I didn't finish it, but it would be something like hashbang slash user slash bin slash gawk dash f because this is an awk script and then i would do something like at load quote in place close quote and this is where i was stumbling because i couldn't figure out what the awk script wanted for the in place thing to work but essentially you would do like a begin curly brace fs equals quote dot close quote semicolon ofs equals quote dot quote semicolon close curly brace so all that does is set the file separator and the output file separator to a dot. And then slash astra no, slash uh, caret version capitals equals slash, or, or whatever string you would want to search for to find your version. So it could be underscore underscore vernum var underscore underscore, or it could just be the, the place where you set it. Um, and then you would have to adjust your awk to, uh, function accordingly but that's what i'm doing i'm just looking for a a variable that's being set to ver to, uh, the, the variable's name's version equals and then whatever it's being set to curly brace sub this is the substitution parent uh, function of awk parentheses slash dollar sign in f close slash comma plus plus dollar sign in f close parentheses semicolon so all i'm doing there is taking the final field in that version number, because I'm on the line with the version equals, so I'm, I'm just looking at the final field, and I'm saying increment that field. Close curly brace, and then curly brace print, close curly brace. And, th and that gets you nine-tenths of the way there. Like I say, I, I, the, the in-place mechanism in, a, in an awk script, I don't know yet. Um, I do know how to do in-place in an awk one-liner, but not in a script. I guess I could just rewrite this as a bash script and just use the in-place thing. Um, yeah, I could do that. Um, so I guess I'm done. This, that's ten-tenths of the way there. You do that as a, um, an awk script instead, or an awk one-liner with, um, awk, uh, dash, dash, file separator equals dot, um, and then dash v ofs equals dot, and then quote, curly brace, no, quote, begin, curly brace, no, I don't, I don't need to begin there, so quote, curly brace, no, <laughs> quote, slash, caret version equals, slash, curly brace, sub, and then your sub statement, close curly brace, curly brace, print, curly brace, close quote, dollar sign, parentheses, get, diff, dash, dash, cached, dash, dash, name, dash, only, close parentheses, and then you're updating your version number, every single time you commit something to git. Now, of course, that is a very simple version, and probably the reason why I thought, well, an aux script is probably really the way to go here, because in reality, this only updates the the minor, minor, minor version, like the, the last number in, in your version string. So if you're doing semver, where you're doing major, minor revision, or whatever it is, uh, then, then you'd never, essentially you'd just have, you know, you'd get to the point where you'd have like 1,358, or, you know, you'd be on version 0.0.1027, .0 .0 you know, 
you know, something ridiculous like that. You'd never increment the next grouping. So you'd have to figure out how you wanted to manage that. But generally speaking, that's the template. That's the, that's the way that you could do that within Git, with a Git hook, so that you literally just, you never had to, well, maybe not literally, because you would have to think about, well, when am I going to upgrade or update, you know, to the next minor version? But all of those things are possible. You, you, you can script, you, you could have Git script that for you, or you could script Git hooks to to implement that for you and let that be possible. Okay, let's go have some coffee and then we'll come back and take more listener feedback. We have coffee. Let's... I, I hope we have coffee. I have coffee. You should have coffee. I've given you a good 30 seconds to get it. I don't know what more you could possibly want. Let's look at this email. It's from Kevin. Kevin is the maintainer of AOS, the Slackware-based distribution. Uh, a little bit minimalist, I guess. Um, or, yeah, I guess you'd say minimalist. Minimalist, though, that makes it sound like, I don't know, like you never get a full environment or something. It's not that. It's just a very focused uh, distribution of Slackware, which is quite nice. He says, not about... AOS at all, but he says, first, in response to your Python 3 episode, my thoughts. Python is a brilliant language for what it's intended. Easy programming which abstracts the writer from a lot of depth which could be considered unnecessary depending on the project. However, Python's indent-dependent syntax means you can't just open something written in some editor without running into potential issues. A language that can't be modified within a basic text editor is annoying. Tuple, so this is Klaatu. I will say that, I mean, strictly speaking, that may or may not be true, but what Kevin is saying is that if you can't have certainty that it's going to be true every single time, then essentially you, you don't, then it's, if, if, if there's no way for you to know, am I going to open this text in my plain text editor? and get the correct view of it? Or am I going to open it up and get some munged, confused tabs instead of spaces or spaces instead of tabs or or tabs that have been converted to spaces that are completely wrong now or spaces that have been converted to tabs? You know, you just, you have no idea. And so you stop trying because you know that it's a 50-50 chance every time you open up something, depending on where you've copied and pasted it from or whatever. So I I 100% agree with this. I think this is this for for Python and YAML. They both effectively they just destroy your confidence in your ability to edit that text outside of some kind of specialized environment, and that's not good. Especially since it's not official that you're not allowed to edit them in whatever text editor, like. On paper, it doesn't matter. They're plain text files. Anything will work. It won't matter. It'll be fine. Just open it, edit it, and save it. But in reality, what happens is that you open it, something goes horribly wrong, you can't tell because you're, you don't know what it's supposed to look like in the first place, and so you save it, and now you've munged it, and you commit it back to the repository, and then the developer comes back to you and says, oh yeah, by the way, you completely screwed up all of the indentation. Happens more often than one might think, and certainly more often than one might like. So anyway, uh, 
this is Kevin again. Tuples and the and or keywords can be helpful to new programmers, but I think most find that they tend to develop bad habits, such as overwriting types, not understanding how an actual for loop works. These habits can make it harder to translate moving on to other languages. I'm starting to recommend JavaScript to new programmers rather than Python, as it is at least as it at least has a viable type of parentheses parentheses function that doesn't return obscure stuff like tuple as a type. Python is useful for quick and dirty solutions or trying to sort of pseudo a setup before writing it in a quote, real, close quote, language, but I don't see it as something which should be used in an industrial environment. Personal opinion, obviously. And my response to this is that, you know, I mean, as I'm reading it, I'm I'm nodding. Like, it all makes, it all reads correct to me. Like, there are definite weaknesses here that that Kevin is is I think very accurately and fairly identifying in Python. And yet there's something about Python. So as someone and I'm speaking just kind of from my own perspective here Klaatu as someone who developed a lot of bad habits because Python was my first language. I I can't help but agree with what Kevin is saying. But I think the the like the actual problem, I guess, because I mean, it's, it is obvious, it is demonstrably true that Python is usable and suitable for a lot more than I think anyone sort of ever probably anticipated originally. Now, I mean, there's obviously a debate whether, what is it, like, you know, f- 10, 10 million or 40, there's some, there's some album about 100, 100 million Python fans can't be wrong, something like that. Um, I'm trying to make a reference and I'm failing. But anyway, like, there's an argument there. Just because we're doing it, does that really mean that it should be done? And obviously that's a fun argument to have. I'm not going to have that because I don't know enough to have that argument. But what I will say is that Python is obviously being used for a lot of stuff. It's obviously something that people are relying on. And it's working really well. Like, there are movies out there that wouldn't exist if Python didn't work. Well, they'd probably exist, but then they wouldn't have used Python to to make the special effects do the things that they did. But there are games and movies and and probably a lot of other things that I don't know anything about that that have Python code underpinning all kinds of stuff that's going on within, you know, within what you see. So it's obviously something that's robust enough to, to function for for the purpose that it claims it's functionable for. But I, I think that the Python community has done a really good job of getting people really excited and and courageous enough to try to code, which for some people you have to understand is a huge, huge thing. Like for me even, I, I, I remember I had tried to learn more about coding. And to me at that time, coding, quote unquote, air quotes, quote, coding was HTML. And and I was having trouble with that. So to ask me at some point to then try your hand at Python, I mean, in a way, that was really quite scary to me. I mean, it actually wasn't because I'm, I, I tend to dive into things with uh, just enough obliviousness to not really understand what I'm getting involved in. So it wasn't actually that scary, but it could have been scary to me. And And certainly earlier in my life at that point, it would have been scary to me because I, I had very little interest in computers at one point. So Python community has a really effective story that they tell people that 
that yes, you can code, and you should code, and it'll be easy, and it's actually kind of fun. You should try this thing. And people get really excited about it, and you see that. And like You see that at conferences, you see it at Python conferences, you see it at Python user groups. I mean, it's, it's a serious campaign to get people learning about code. And I used to be a little bit ambivalent about, well, do people really need to learn about code? Like, what about the people who don't need to learn how to code? Wait, what about those people? And it's becoming more and more evident to me as the years go on that, no, actually it's really important for people to learn to code. It is as important as it is for people to learn how to write, which I hate saying that because it sounds really just like, well, you would say that. You're in the computer industry, so obviously you think people need to learn how to code. But that's not why I'm saying it. I'm just saying that education is important. I don't mean that it has to be structured education, but people need to learn new things. They need to understand what they're using. And one of the things that people need to understand is how to write because it helps communicate. Another thing is math. It's pretty important. Not all math is necessary for all people, but you need to know know the, the rudimentary parts about math. Code is, is equally as important because we're all using technology. And if that technology appears to be magic to you, then you have a very different relationship with it. I mean, you start you, you start thinking things like, well, 5G is going to track me uh, and read my brain waves because you just have no clue how technology works. Or you think, well, this vaccine is dangerous and might modify my DNA because you have no idea how how science works. Like, you just you don't understand that there's a process, that there's a, a testing process that goes that that happens, and that there are proofs that are written, and and so on. Right? There are things that that happen behind the scenes that you're not aware of. You see the product, and as far as you're aware, as the saying goes. It is magic. Like there, there's no distinguish. There's nothing to distinguish the technology from magic. So people need to learn how to code so that that magic quotient goes way, way down. They understand this device that I'm holding is doing the thing that it is doing because someone sat down and and coded a lot more complex stuff than the little things that I did in school. But I understand that this is just the product of, of human ingenuity. It is not anything having to do with, you know, I don't know, dark forces or, or otherworldly forces or whatever. So it's important. Now, the problem is, I think, that I know that it seems like I'm way off track here, but this is a listener feedback episode. I, that's, it's fair game. So the, the problem is that I feel like the the really, really good introductory Python lessons, they do seem to work. They get people excited about coding, they get people coding, people are writing stuff, and it's it's great. But I do feel like the lessons are ultimately, as Kevin was saying, they're they're kind of wrong or they're just naive. And so you get a lot of people like you know who graduate from Python and they just don't understand the important basics such as what a data type is and and why you would have to worry about a data type. And maybe that's not a problem for everyone. Some people don't ever need to know what a data type is. Like they'll they they've done their Python um programming, maybe they've written something that they're proud of, maybe they haven't. They they've they've done it. They understand what code is. Great. They never know they never have to understand why they might have to cast data from integer to ascii or ascii to integer or whatever. And th- and that's fine. But but for people who do want to go on and continue, 
then then there needs to be you know there 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 has to be some point at which they they learn the other things the things that python is is kind of hiding from them and and the 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 conflict here i think is that you could say well python needs to stop hiding those things from people but then you have this new problem of where python is no longer the super easy programming language to learn that you that you said it was and i think that's almost in in some ways happening today like there are things about python today that i just feel are almost a little bit too low level or, or high level i always get which level is the good one mixed up but you know there there's there are things in python that annoy me today that i'm thinking i i'm i'm sure that when i was learning python this was not a problem i didn't have to ever worry about this um i think even just prefixing like a string with str or u or something like that i don't know for a while there there was something in there that was like i never had to worry about this back when i was learning python why am i having to learn about it now so even python itself is starting to sort of suffer from not you know not worrying about telling from abstracting things from people so i think i think that the the real solution probably is in the way that we are teaching python ultimately because i mean the fact is that no matter how much we hide from people the the sort of the ugly back-end processes at some point they're they're either going to have to learn about them or our language our language in this case being python is going to have to accept them anyway because at some point things get sufficiently advanced where the abstraction no longer applies and you do have people realizing Oh, I don't want to treat that integer as an integer in this case. I want it. I want it to be a string. That's an important lesson and and a realistic one. Um, and people need to understand why they're doing that. Or else, again, it's it's magic again. Only this time, instead of magic outside the device, it's magic on the inside of the device. You're 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 coding at least. But but why you have to do that thing? Like I don't know. Because someone told me I had to do it. Because I did it this one time. And so I'm going to do it every other time since, even when it's not necessary, and so on. So I think the the key is in how Python is taught. And just off the top of my head, I think I've said this before. I think off the top of my head, I'd probably introduce functions a lot earlier in Python uh, lessons. I, I mean to do that myself. It, it's I don't have it down. It's not quite finessed yet. It is definitely it's it's clunky to teach people about functions. Because it's just, I mean, like, you can teach people about hello world. That's easy. Like, print, quote, uh, parentheses, quote, hello, close quote, close parentheses. That's a lesson. That is a complete lesson that someone can, can understand. But when you tell them to do def say hello, parentheses, parentheses, colon, return, indent, print hello, with all the decorations that's really not very graceful that that is very inelegant how do you explain to someone that def space some some arbitrary word parent empty parentheses colon is significant and and what what function that plays in in the code i mean i do i do feel like the word def is one of the one of the great weaknesses of python and whatever other language i saw it in recently um, I think the word function would be a lot more intuitive there, and it would be easier to teach because you could tell people, well, in programming, there are these little code 
blocks that we can write, and then we can reuse them whenever we want them. We're essentially writing our own keywords, our own commands. So we create a function with the word function, but I guess now you just have to say, we create this function with the word def, D-E-F. I guess you can tell them that that's short for define, but it's just, it's just awkward. It's really awkward. And then, and then you tell them they have to give the, the function a name, the definition a name, which in this case is say hello, and then parentheses, parentheses. I don't know what you'll tell them at that. I guess you could, um, I don't know, gloss over that for now, and then, and then tell them that when they invoke the function, and that's the strength of this lesson, is that, is that they've written a function and then nothing happens. And they think, well, that was unspectacular. And then you explain to them, well, a function exists to sort of isolate and, and containerize your code, so it doesn't get executed unless you call it. And the way that you call it in Python is say hello, parentheses, parentheses. Maybe that kind of ties it in, you know, the parentheses thing together. And I guess eventually, you know, the next lesson would probably be, well, what does go inside of those parentheses? Well, what if we put a name inside of those parentheses? Then, then, then what could we, how could we change our function to say hello, clatu, or hello, some name, and so on. So, I don't know, I think the key here, I don't think the weakness is Python. I think the key, I, I think the weakness is how we're teaching Python. That's what I think. Um, and when we, and, and, and anyway, we may as well recognize, we, that may as well be true, right? Even if it's not true, even if Python is not a well-designed language or, or something, then, then it's still Python. It still exists. People are still excited about Python and, and rightfully so, in my opinion. Um, and, and so how do we mitigate the, the, the weaknesses that we identify in Python? Well, unless we're going to go and, and become committers on uh, on the Python core team, then I think the best way is to, to take what Python provides people and to explain it really, really well. Better than Python, perhaps, explains it itself. And that's, I mean, that's that's important. That's important. And I think that's kind of, as technology enthusiasts, I think that is part of our, um, I should say, as open source technology enthusiasts, I believe that's part of our burden. Um that's kind of one of the things that we're tasked with. Whether it's fair or not, I don't know. Because, I mean, you know, other other people don't have to do that. Well, if... But we're responsible. We're open source. We promote knowledge. And so that's part of what we do, is we, we explain it better than, than anyone else. Um, and that's that's essentially it. We, we uh, Kevin and I talked a little bit about JavaScript, which um, is an interesting conversation, but, but kind of specific. Uh, and... And frankly, I'm out of my depth with JavaScript. I, I don't actually use it all that often at all. Um, I've, I've written some things in it, but I don't I don't use it much. That's all I think. That's all of the listener feedback that I had. But there, there was an interaction that I might as well mention. This interaction occurred on Mastodon. It wasn't directed at me, so this is not listener feedback. But someone said on on Mastodon, uh, "This is Witch Hat Hacker." Spooky. Actually, sorry, it's Witch Hat Hacker Jack-O-Lantern Emoji Spooky. That's the name of this user. And this user said on Mastodon, Actually, though, isn't it weird how when Apple stuff doesn't work on Windows, or Windows stuff doesn't work on Apple or, or Mac, nobody cares. But when Mac or Windows stuff doesn't work on Linux, then everyone is super angry all of a sudden. So I thought that was an interesting point because you do have Windows people who can't run a Mac application or Mac people who can't run a Windows application 
And that just seems sort of par for the course. That's just a natural thing that happens. But when you have something, when you're on Linux, or when you're introducing someone to Linux, and, and they say, well, can I run Foo? And you say, no, Foo isn't, is a, is a Windows application or a, a Mac application. It doesn't work on Linux. Then all of a sudden, it's as if though Linux is just like, what kind of atrocious state of affairs is Linux in? Well, it's in the same state of affairs as Mac and Windows. It's just, you, you, there's, there's incompatibility. There are, there is software that doesn't work on one platform or the other. It's not, it is not at all unusual for that to, in fact, that's the norm you might argue cross-platform applications are are not all that common i mean they are if you think about it you know if you sit back and really think of all the ones that you can list sure but then you could do the same exercise for all the things that aren't cross-platform and believe me you'll find plenty so it is weird to me that people do seem to think that it's so absolutely atrocious that linux can't run this or that or i should say this or that doesn't run on linux because it's not linux not being able to run it it's those application programmers not porting it over to Linux, uh, that, it's, that it's a big deal. I feel like that's, that's quite odd. And then a corollary to that that I noticed was that when some essential app, whatever it might be, again, call it Foo, isn't available on, for instance, Mac, people very often happily find a workaround, or they just switch to some other app, anything to stay on Mac OS. But when some essential app isn't available on Linux, then that's when you start getting the, the, the quotes about, well, that's why I can't use Linux. Once that application's on Linux, then I'll switch. But I can't use Linux if, if that application isn't on Linux yet. And yet people do exactly that on other platforms and adapt by hook or by crook. It's, it's, I don't think this is like unfair or anything like that. I mean, I understand that this is just how the world works. This is the, this is the, 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 the thing that we have built together, there are certain things that do not work together. And that's, that's fine. It's just, it feels disingenuous, I guess, when people sort of treat Linux as this exception, because it's clearly not an exception. It is, it is very much in the same boat as, as both Mac and Windows. And, and yet somehow people treat Linux as the, the, the great exception, the, the exceptional OS that doesn't have applications and 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 that they have to learn when they switch to it and they never had to learn any new operating system before so isn't it strange that they must learn Linux you know it's just it's weird it's it's a very strange kind of condition that that people get themselves into and i don't really understand it actually i mean i i guess i do understand it because i was there as well at one point well i wasn't exactly i switched to linux um, but, I mean, I did have to learn Linux, and it was sometimes frustrating to adapt. You know, you have to learn new things, you have to change the applications that you're using, and so on. And that can be frustrating. So, it is difficult. I mean, I, I, I have no question that if I had switched to Windows instead of Linux, that would have been frustrating as well. So, I, I'm aware, I guess, of, of how those two things are not at all different. But I do feel like a lot of people just don't switch to Linux and then blame some some condition that also exists on many other operating systems on Linux, as if though it doesn't exist elsewhere. And that's very strange. Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's something in real life. Maybe it's something to to gently point out to someone if you're introducing someone to Linux and they seem upset that um, I don't know Adobe Premiere doesn't work on on Linux. 
point them to to an alternative like Kadian Live and and point out to them that Final Cut Pro doesn't work on Windows, but it does work on on Mac. And if they complain that the keyboard shortcuts are unfamiliar to them, or or like the um, I don't know the interface of of their desktop is un, unfamiliar with them, then point out that in fact uh, the the Mac uh, desktop and the Windows desktop are are actually quite different as well, and so on. There, there's a lot of I think things that people say about Linux that that make it seem exceptional when if if you just mention it in in a different context maybe it would seem less less exceptional to them who knows maybe not i mean people are weird people are people are humans and humans are um very special creatures so who knows but give it a shot thanks for listening to this show thanks for all the feedback and i'll talk to you next time for s trace and subversion Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open kidding when you call it weird. I've heard some screwy ones in my time, but this one takes the prize.